0: Hi, I'm Adam Kaufman, and you're listening to the Up to Podcast. Today, we've invited successful business owner and power broker, Umberto Fidelli, back into the Up to studio for the third and final episode of our special mini-series. Umberto is the chairman and CEO of the Fideli Group, and is also quite active in charitable pursuits. As a veteran of nearly 40 years in business, philanthropy, and politics, Umberto today shares advice about investing and living a balanced life. We're glad to have you back, Umberto. My pleasure, Adam. What time did you wake up today? Which time? For good. What time did you get out of bed?
1: Yeah, first time was 2.30, and I said it was too early, and I took something to help me go back to sleep a little bit, so I slept in, I think, 4 4.30 today.
0: Did you get your workout in? I got my workout in 90 minutes today. Awesome. So it's like 3 o'clock now, so this is like the end of your day. This is almost like midnight for you. No,
1: it's starting second shift.
0: Well, I'm so thrilled we're doing this again. This will be our third episode of this uh, mini-series. And I wanted to start off with something I've noticed about you. You always seem to be looking to improve your own learning. Where are you growing right now? Like, what's your growing
1: edge? What are you most intrigued by, trying to learn more about? Well, Adam, I really think, I wrote a piece once talking about being a peak performer, and I think there's... A, a peak
0: probably, performer.
1: Yeah, I think there's about six, seven, eight things in your life that you need to constantly try to improve upon to, um, you know, we're a work in progress. We're, we're never gonna be perfect, because we're, we're human. And so to me, I, I make a list of these things and try to improve your family life, try to improve your faith life, try to improve your health, try to improve improve business, investments, you know, community. So how are you doing on all those things? Well, I need improvement in all of them because um, I fall short. But I, I, um, I try to constantly, uh, we have something that the Fidelity Group called the three commitments. Okay. And we ask you to be, number one, proactive instead of reactive. Number two, we ask you to be committed to lifelong learning. Mm. Learning in your community, your business, your industry, your country, your city, your community, your profession, uh, your heritage, every aspect of your life. And then we ask you to be cooperative, collegial, congenial, and collegial with your colleagues.
0: Good alliteration. But seriously, like that number two is what I was getting. I can see that tenant of your employee group. Also in you, you are committed to lifelong learning. I, I, that's evident to me.
1: We try because think about it. You don't want to be 30 years down the road and you're basically doing the same thing the same way and you haven't progressed. So we, we want to improve in every aspect of our life when we can. We're going to have shortcomings and we're going to have mistakes. Absolutely.
0: and that, But that's the humble you as well. you We all know that there's no finish line in these categories and uh, you're continuing to try to move forward. Progress, not perfection. Right, right. And one of the items that you briefly touched on in a prior discussion, I'd like to drill down a little bit specifically around rational targeting. You have a thesis about rational targeting that I'd love for you to to share with us.
1: I think I learned the hard way, Adam, that if you figure out what you're really, really good at and what you really, really like to do. And if you concentrate on what you're good at and what you like to do, you tend to do it much better because now you're in your zone. Mm-hmm. You're in your element. Mm-hmm. So you find people who absolutely love what they do, then they're hard to compete with because other people are working at it and they're just doing what they love to do. So if you find out what you're good at and what you like to do, that's what I call rational targeting. And so even that concept, for instance, of the Cleveland Clinic, um, as a board member, as a director and chairman of government and community relations, what does a clinic do really, really well? You know, what do they like to do? And then we would look at relationship mapping and say, where are there pockets of, or departments or areas or, you know, you know, maybe agencies that are looking for that? So if they do heart really well or they do you know, research in, in you know, burdens of wounds or mm-hmm. healing. Mm-hmm. And, and so that rational targeting could be used in politics and business and in investments. So Warren Buffett talks about in investments, for instance, that one of the great baseball players would look at a strike zone and break it down into 72 segments. Wow, 72. And said, you need to find your strike zone. Where are you really? Where's that strike zone that you're really good at? So even in life, where's that strike zone where you're really in your element? And then when you go swing the bat, this was Ted Williams, in your strike zone, he had one of the highest, Batting averages ever. That same concept.
0: So the ra- the rational targeting in this instance, it's the entity or you targeting or focusing on something that is a strength of yours. A
1: strength of yours, a passion of yours, uh, an area that you just enjoy, like, good at.
0: So that actually reminds me of Marcus Buckingham. Have you read any of his books? Yes. Um, Discover your strengths. Yes. Uh, that was really instrumental for me in my own career. His definition of a strength isn't something we're good at. It's something that makes us feel good while we're doing it. And that's kind of what you just said. So if we can get that rumble in our belly when we're doing something, that is a strength in his mind.
1: It is. And and even going back to Warren Buffett, so he, he was speaking at the clinic and a young man that was in college said, Mr. Buffett, if you had to give me one piece of advice, just one, since you're one of the most successful business people in the world, what would that be? He said, find out what you love to do, what you're really good at and pursue that because you'll do way better, it's not something really taught when you're a child or in grade school or in high school or even college. And it's true. You just kind of go and do things that you think you're supposed to do or you think that you like, but you right. don't necessarily know, and many people never find it. Uh, about half of the people in our country are doing things they're really not good at. Maybe they want to be a quarterback, but they can run, but they can't throw.
0: And even we as parents, we can, uh, although well-intentioned, uh, kind of feed the wrong thinking on this. So if one of our children comes home with uh, three A's, three B's, and a C, what do we spend the most time talking about? The C. Yeah, and Marcus Buckingham would say that's wrong. We should turbocharge the A's. We should, of course, deal with the C, but we should really accelerate the A's. That's the rational targeting, so to speak.
1: It is, but on the other hand, sometimes we're also pushing our children too hard, and, and we're, do, we're doing what Father Spitzer would say, level two comparison game, and, and he'll say that's a road to hell. Because what you're doing is you're, you're pushing people to constantly achieve, ego-oriented, run faster, succeed more, do this better. And at some point you have to say, Adam, life's about a contribution, not a comparison.
0: Not comparison, right. I'm in a lot of airports and I see so many books about happiness. I, on the other hand, think happiness is fleeting. Rather than pursuing happiness, I think we should pursue meaning and finding meaning in our lives. Do you think happiness and meaning... Are synonyms or are they different?
1: I think they're interrelated. So if you go back to Aristotle, the great Italian philosopher, you're laughing though. He it wasn't <laughs> Italian. They say he was Greek. Yeah, All, right. All right. right. I think he was Italian. Okay. But Aristotle said what most people are really yearning for in life is to be happy. So a lot of their decisions are, this will make me happy. If I get married, if I have this career, if I buy this car, right. if I buy this suit. And so they're trying to be happy. And so what is happiness? What is it? And a gentleman who was nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize wrote me a letter when I was in my 20s, and he said something. He took care of 50,000 children, and he said something to me in a letter that i never forgotten, and I've used it, and I've always given him credit. He said to me in a letter, and he was in his late 80s, and he said, I think I finally figured out what the secret of happiness in life is. He said to me, Berto, in life, the secret of happiness is to love, mm-hmm. and the essence of love is to serve. So the secret of happiness is to love. So love is that special word. And I've shared with Brother Stewart that what's missing in the world more than anything else is that word love. If there was more love in the world, we'd have a lot less problems and people would be happier. When you look at the love of a mother and a child or two buddies— or, you know, somebody that's been you yeah, know, lifelong a, friends. Friends, an aunt, an uncle, a yeah. godfather, when you just see that special or bomb. That, infantrymen who serve together. Well, yeah, that fondness, that respect, that admiration mm-hmm. where they just are comfortable with who they are. And there's that special feeling, um, yeah, love for a, a novel that I have my grandfather seven times, one more on the way. Um, that, that 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 that's pretty happiness, right? That love. The fellow
0: who wrote you that who was nominated? You'd like to give him credit. Are you able to tell us who yes. that was? His
1: name was Monsignor Carroll Abing, and he was an Irish priest that was in the war, and happened to be visiting from Ireland to Italy. And the little boy's family got killed, and he took this little boy in, and then took in another child, and then he took another child. Hmm. He ended up with about fifty thousand children that he helped. and It was called boys Town of Italy, and it happened to be located in Italy, and and he happened to be Irish. And I had the opportunity of hosting him for lunch a number of times, and I visited Boystown where he took care of it, and it was all about tough love. He would teach him the work. He would teach him discipline. And these were people that were children whose parents had died in all walks of life, mm-hmm. all cultures, all nationalities. And he would also would say something in an Irish brogue, and then he would do it in Italian. But he would say, he would look up in the star, he goes, for every tear you wipe off a child's face is a star you light up in the sky. Mm. And this guy was all about taking care of these children who had lost their family members, Right. And and so sometimes you get wisdom. I remember listening to a commencement address from Lou Holtz. New Dame football coach, legendary. And he was talking at Franciscan University, and the average student probably that was graduating was twenty one or twenty two. He looked at him and said, I've been twenty two. You haven't been seventy eight. Mm. And there's a certain amount of wisdom that people that have lived longer lives have that you can't have at twenty two. Undoubtedly.
0: Yeah. Back to the uh, happiness question. I I feel like happiness is fleeting. Happiness can be fleeting. So your colleague who helped those 50,000 children, he probably always wasn't happy in the moment when he was dealing with these sad kids, but he had meaning. It gave him meaning. Yes. And so for me, meaning is is the pursuit that really can be most fulfilling. Viktor Frankl's famous book, Surviving. Men's Search for Meaning. You know, the Concentration. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Like that to me, that's what, back to your other comment, that's the type of thing our kids should be reading in schools. I well, think.
1: that is purpose. And so Simon Civic talks a lot about your why, discovering your why, your mm-hmm. purpose. And if people discover their why, why am I doing this? Right. Why? Then they tend to find more meaning in their life. Right. And they find more fulfillment in their life.
0: We're going to talk more about your investing strategies Someone close to me suggested I ask you this question. I thought it was a good one. Do you think morality and capitalism can coexist? Absolutely. Talk about that.
1: Well, there are times maybe things get compromised, but but why can't you be? You said absolutely right away. You've been asked that before maybe. Oh, many times. I yeah. think, no,
0: because— A very the, unoriginal question by me.
1: Well, no, it's not that. It's the world can be ruthless. Business can be ruthless. Politics can be ruthless. Family members can be ruthless. For sure but it's all on how you do things it's all on how you do business it's all on how you treat people even uh, the great saint john paul wrote a whole piece about capitalism and the bottom line is when i got done reading it i didn't know if it was ronald reagan or if it was pope john paul he said it all depended on how you treated your people yeah we have free will but if you treated your people well and you treat them with dignity you treat them with respect and and you're fair you know, I've seen business people take advantage when someone is down and out and For they sure. leverage it. Yeah. I think it's immoral to do that. Others think it's just business. There are certain cultures where lying and cheating is just how you do business. Mm. There's other places but we say that's wrong. And so I think what happens is if you can be selective of who you do business with, it's always about the who, right? Who you marry, who you trust, who you do business with. If the who isn't right, the what doesn't matter, right? It's so important. Mm-hmm. And, and now as you get bigger, you get less selective. But if you run a, a closely held business or a smaller business, you can be selective who you do business, what customers, who you hire. Mm-hmm. And you want people who share your vision, share your meaning, share your why. You'll attract employees who feel that way. You'll attract customers who believe in that. And so finding your purpose of life is so important. If you think
0: about it, we in America, we spend a lot of time thinking about or pursuing money. I think we're all guilty of that at different levels. But we're not supposed to let it drive us. So how much do you kind of put a governor around yourself? Like, do you ever feel like you're going too hard towards the creature comforts and the accumulation of stuff?
1: Yeah, I think it happens to all of us because we're human. Right. Money is a funny thing because it may be one of the commodities that somebody who's got 75000000000 you know, billion, they're still trying to make more money. You say, like, how, like, what can you possibly do? Right. I, I think what happens is, it's even scripture talks about it isn't money. It's the love of money.
0: That's right? the idolatry.
1: Yeah. And, and so what happens is I think we need to have balance in our life. And by nature, I'm not balanced. So we have to put certain, you call it governors, or certain checks and balances. Right. And, and what starts to happen is that, that that's why as you get older, purpose, you know, people that are living meaningful lives— uh, they found communities where people lived long and they're looking at the food and they're looking at the diet and they found out they felt part of a community and how important these relationships were. And on someone's deathbed, the word relationship comes up more than anything else. Of course. Money doesn't come up too much on someone's deathbed.
0: In my old work at Health Network, I used to envy these very successful CEOs who asked us to help them with some medical matter. And wrongly, I would desire their life and their lifestyle. But when I got closer with them, they were often broken inside. They had problems with their marriages or their children, distance between themselves and their children. And the pursuit of money really didn't serve them well as they reflected back. Often, this is like a 75-year-old person I was talking to who has everything money could buy, but they they wanted to go back in time and do it differently. It really has resonated with me.
1: I think uh, I had that same uh, experience many times. Meeting somebody older and maybe super successful in one aspect of their life, and and then maybe other aspects of their life were not as successful. And so trying to find balance and working towards that mm-hmm. to be a peak performer, trying to find purposeful work, purposeful relationships. Yeah, work that gives you meaning work that gives you meanings or, or even Novak wrote a book that business can be a calling. Yeah. Mother Teresa. Michael Novak. Michael Novak, Great author. Right. But even Mother Teresa said, you know, we can all do ordinary things in an extraordinary way. That's the summary of Jim Collins's last book, Great by Choice. These were ordinary businesses that did things in an extraordinary way. And so it's how you do things and, and you can touch people's lives in so many ways, and, and you don't have to wait till you're super rich or super successful or super famous or super right. influential. Right. You have that opportunity to do that every day and sometimes we're always looking down the road. We're looking out and, and we're forgetting the next out. deal. The next, the next deal, the next opportunity. The next it, <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's You're always looking for whatever and, and, and then once someone achieves what they thought they wanted, They almost feel anticlimactic, and said that's all there is.
0: That's the happiness is fleeting uh, comment that I made earlier. But now that we've established that morality and capitalism can coexist, now that we've established that we're good people and we don't suffer from too much idolatry, let's talk about money a little bit. Can we do that? Sure. Okay. So we've spent a lot of time uh, in the last couple of episodes discussing your uh, theories on publicly traded companies buying stocks. I'd like to talk more now about banks. You like investing in banks.
1: I think they're like regional banks usually. Why do you like investing in banks? Well, when I was in my early 20s, I'd lost all my money doing something called options, which is pure gambling, it's not investing. And then I did something called margin, where I borrowed money from the bank and then gave that to the broker and it was all borrowed and then the market crashed. Mm. First investment that I did that worked out was a bank that we invested in, and it worked. And because it worked, I said, oh, I like this. And, and I started to learn a bit, but but I, liked, I like investing in things I understand. And, and in, in the last 10 years, we've invested in about 140 banks. I don't know how many in the last-
0: 140 banks.
1: We have a little fund now with, with a couple of great partners, Marty Adams, and Marty started with two branches in Salineville, Ohio, and built that up to 18 billion of assets, and 12 years ago sold the bank for 3.5 billion. So we now invest in community banks. Think about America. Banking almost represents what's great about America. So if you go to Canada, our neighbor, they have five or six banks. You go to Germany, or if you go to Italy, or most places have a handful of banks. We still have 5,500. Wasn't that many years back, we had 17,000. And so we now look to buy banks that we think are trading significantly below their intrinsic transaction value, what they're worth on a sale. Only when we can clearly identify multiple buyers that we think would be interested in the banks and understanding the catalysts that create that value. So you identify the buyers before you invest? We identify banks that are desirable by a number of people. Why? Supply and demand. Okay. If nobody wants your home, but if you have five people that want your house, the chance your price will go up. So it, it's it's not necessarily knowing for sure who's going to buy it, but you're buying banks that are desirable by multiple buyers. We like to buy them at deep value, where we're buying them below what they're already worth, price to book, price to earnings.
0: And you do this through a fund we that you've this, already raised money for?
1: Yes, and but we also do it personally when it doesn't you know, compete with, with the fund. And I like looking at other sophisticated bank investors, because that inherently puts more pressure on the board and management, because when they're asking you questions, you know they know what they're talking about.
0: It's funny, you watch the big sophisticated bankers, because... Others watch your investing in banks. When you take a position now, it's in the newspaper. So others are watching you too. You're
1: you're on the other side of that equation. Well, I'm just a peasant kid, but we're buying little banks now. So we're, we're buying little banks. You know, it could be in the private equity fund where we're buying private banks, it could be 300 million, 500 million of assets. When you think of banks locally, like, Key Corp, who's got a terrific leader in Beth Mooney. They're well over 100 billion of assets. Yeah, we're not buying banks that to size. 20 banks in the yeah, country. Right. We're buying, we're buying small banks. We're buying community banks. Mm-hmm. We're, we're buying banks uh, that, that – it's the backbone of America as well. Now, I had someone the other day say, well, aren't you worried about, about some of the disruptors? And I said, like, who? And they mentioned four of them. I said, yes, and I own all four of those stocks. Mm-hmm. So that's the other segment.
0: Right. So, a lot of fintech companies that are changing the way no, traditional banking occurs.
1: There's no question, but it's still hard to compete with just the old-fashioned relationships, right? It definitely is.
0: What did we learn from the recession in the U.S.? It wasn't solely about banking, but a lot of it seemed to be around the banking industry, 2007,
1: 2008, 2009. Well, if you study that, the, the book Big Short Oh yeah. or the movie Big Short, Mm-hmm. So if you really think what happened is I got a call one day from somebody and
0: and at the time, do you believe that that theory is what caused the recession mostly is these
1: uh, it was it was mortgage a mortgage swaps. It was a, a big part of it. It's as simple as this. They were loaning money to people who could not afford to buy the home, and it became less of a down payment. It had less of a ratio of income. And what started to happen, part of it was also political pressure,
0: right right. It and, was politically correct to loan to certain demographic groups.
1: But think about this. I get a call from a guy, and I think it was a Pope Benedict who wrote in a cyclical. But he was writing about what happened in the recession. So this reporter calls me from some national or international source, says, "Hey, I'd like your comment about what Pope Benedict recently wrote." And I said, "Well, I'm not a theologian, and I haven't read it yet." There's an article in the in the journal. Back then, I wasn't reading it on an iPad. Today, to I am, so I could read it very early. The Wall Street Journal, you're talking yes. about? Yes, and, and I read that earlier, and I read Burns early in the morning, and and I said, uh, "All right, let me read it. I'll get back to you." He goes, "Well, can I just?" Put me on hold, and I said, "If you don't mind waiting, but I got to read it." He said, "What do you think?" I said, "Oh, I I agree with the Holy Father." He said, "What's that?" He said, "This was a moral crisis." See, I wouldn't loan money to you if you couldn't afford the payment and you didn't have the down payment. And I would say, "Adam, listen, you don't have enough money down. You don't earn enough money, right?" And and so they were loaning money out because they didn't care because they were selling the mortgages, and those people were selling the mortgages. And what happened is, if you treated that person like they were your friend and your neighbor. Then we, it was a moral crisis as much as it was a financial crisis. Back so,
0: to our free will commentary. Yes. Can capitalism and morality coexist?
1: It can. And so now the question is, do you blame those who wanted the American dream and wanted a home? They just want what everybody else wants. I would say they were part to blame because you also have to have the ability to afford something. On the other hand, the people that knew what they were doing, they didn't care. And they had no money down. You didn't have an income. If you missed one payment, you couldn't. You couldn't. You know, your wife didn't work. You didn't work. You might lose a house. Because they were selling the mortgages. Right. We had a local bank that was making a billion a year in subprime business, okay? But they were using outside brokers. They weren't doing their own underwriting. It's classic big short. It's un- almost unbelievable what happened. Well, you're clearly passionate
0: about banks. Are there any other industries right now that you're beginning to delve into and try to learn more about? Is there something captivating you beyond banks?
1: Well, there's no question that we've been fascinated about these cloud-based disruptors, these fast-growth companies that are are going to change the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, the future Amazons, future Facebooks, future Googles. Salesforce. Uh, Salesforce, uh, P- PayPal, Microsoft uh, is making so much money now in cloud-based. Ma- Ma- Microsoft, uh, ServiceNow, uh, we have about 27 positions in these. We studied the most successful companies and said, all right, in the most successful companies that really succeeded, let's see what existed. It's like studying uh, Covey, Seven Habits of Successful People. Right. It's saying, all right, forget about what I think. Forget about my opinion. Let's study what factors existed where there was incredible success and take those factors and say, okay, how do we apply those forward? Now, it's easier looking backwards mm-hmm. than going forward. And trying to take these factors that we found and see what goes forward, because sometimes the disruptors get disrupted. It's like going to confession, like as you said. It's like going to confession, but... but Reflect predict, backwards and then learn from it for going forwards. But predicting the future of how things are going to happen, I don't know. I still have a hard time understanding the concept of driverless cars.
0: I talked to about autonomy. It's going to be big, my friend.
1: It's going to be big. And we just invested in a company with a super smart young man in the Silicon Valley that, that does, you know, like robots for offices, this AI learning. I don't understand it all, but here's what I do understand. When I call information and my kids say, Dad, you look something up online, it's not a person. That's a computer that comes online. And so what's going to happen is there's going to be more robots, computers, automation to do things with less people. Now, I feel okay. like I'm watching the Jetsons back when I was a kid. <laughs> That's right.
0: I've just loved, though, how you're always learning. I, I can see it in just the way you live your life and the things you write about in your columns. Recently, uh, Fay Vincent, who was the baseball commissioner, I guess he's sick now, but in the Wall Street Journal, he wrote this spectacular piece on the importance of learning and the youthful process of learning now that he's 81, but being able to, like, learn like a child again. And I have not stopped rereading this piece. And I just feel like you you live that too. And you're, you're not, thank God, sick, but you're always learning. You're never satisfied with what you know. Do you have some favorite things you seem to often draw from?
1: The one I just gave you that when— Monsignor Carlo Apping wrote the, the secret of happiness and the whole idea of love and and that when, letter he wrote you when he wrote me that letter I, I must have sat there and like like hyper focused and read it I don't know over and over and over It just hit me mm. at a certain time and and I've used it so many times you know because uh, you know certain things hit you at different times different ways absolutely it strikes a chord in the moment. And, you know, and that's sometimes also how we learn. It's like you can go to church and read the same scripture passage, and all of a sudden it'll hit you a different way at a different time. And, Depending on where are you in your own life. Yeah, what's you know. going on. And, 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 but the whole idea of continually trying to, to learn and improve, I think it's part of uh, our life journey. Who do you look up to? In different areas, different people. So, so if you look at people who have lived extraordinary lives, uh, you'd have to talk about Mother Teresa and John Paul you know, when you look at the type of people, lives they live, But, you know, um, an event we just had at our house uh, a few weeks back uh, with a, a living saint, Father Hagen, who has thousands of children in Haiti that we did with Governor DeWine it was year 20. Here's a guy that was a chaplain at Princeton and takes oath of poverty, chastity, obedience, and takes care of children. And half of these children die before they're, they're five, and they live in horrible poverty, and he lives with them, he's dedicated his life to living among them, yeah, I, I I look at people like that, and I admire what they do, and i I feel terrible because I just don't feel that I could do what they do. And I feel that I'm living this American dream, and we have all these nice things and the way we live in our country. we we don't have all that suffering. So when people are helping people like that or even nurses,
0: Yeah, less famous people who are doing the quiet, important work.
1: nurses or people that work at uh, hospice centers or nursing homes. You know, people that are working with people that are sick or hurt or dying or or teachers. Uh, There's a lot of...
0: Unsung heroes. Oh,
1: there's a lot of wonderful people in our world, right? Do you ever think about who
0: might be looking up to you? Probably not too many, right? That's not true. I mean, you're in the public eye and not only your employee base... I've gotten to know some of them, and they all look up to you. But do you spend much time thinking about your own legacy?
1: Well, as you get older, you start thinking about it more, and and uh, hopefully you got a long time to, to improve that legacy. And uh, I think uh, as you get older, I think one of the things is um, meaningful work, meaningful life. Ray Dalio talks about that. I, I think purpose becomes more important. Mm-hmm. I think uh, there's a lot of things you do when you're younger just to do them. And then as you get older you're saying well, why am I doing this? Do you think ever about how you
0: behave in terms
1: of people watching you
0: like for instance is anger ever justified?
1: Well, yes, it can be justified, but anything out of context doesn't really look very good. The optics the aren't good, right? Not at the time. At the time if people knew the whole thing. So if you see someone react in you know in a fit of anger but you knew that they just stopped Somebody trying to hurt a child—you'd understand it. But if you right. just saw somebody angry and not knowing what happened, so out of context, sometimes things look a little.
0: In the office different. environment, if a coworker treats one bad, maybe something else is going on in his or her life that
1: affects their mood that day. There's no, there's no question. But but it, you know, it's it still it's important to treat people with respect, with dignity. The way you want to be treated, kindness. Um, you know, everybody's someone's child, someone's father, someone's brother, someone's daughter. Am I allowed to bring up when you went and visited your first boss's home after their first day? Ah, oh, we can't talk about that. <laughs> he was—he wasn't. This was one of our first bosses. He wasn't too nice to a bunch of people, and he and I had a little little conversation. So. We had to make a little adjustment of uh, how he treated people. I call that a review of expectations. A review of expectations. <laughs> I told Mikey that occasionally in my life I've given people what I call courtesies, you know. <laughs> okay. There's just certain things you just, you know, like at some point I was never very good at him and dealing with people that are bullies that try to take advantage of somebody. And at some point someone needs to pull somebody aside and say, you know, beating up on somebody right. and being cruel to somebody and, and mean mean-spirited to somebody – and humiliating somebody is wrong absolutely and i don't think you should do that and sometimes somebody from the outside has to take that uh, it's it's wrong no yeah. one has a right to be nasty and mean and treat people with terrible uh, anger and, and right. screaming and yelling and, and short sightedness and being abusive bullying is a terrible
0: thing back to how people watch you and read about the moves you make and banking and so forth have you ever thought about publishing your own newsletter. I know we've talked about newsletters you like to read or publications like The Motley Fool you turn to. Have you ever thought about creating your own subscription service of some kind with all the research you and your team?
1: we thought about it. You know, we have some people who help us write things, and we publish little parts and things, and, and sometimes I just haven't taken the time to, to organize it. And
0: You do it all for free, though. I bet people would pay for your research. Maybe a nickel or dime or something. Okay. I don't know.
1: Maybe Maybe a quarter, quarter.
0: maybe a quarter, maybe a quarter. I think that, um, this age of digital audio content presents a lot of us with more opportunity to learn quicker. Do you think that your next 10 years of investing versus like the last 10 years, how's it going to change in this digital age? Stock exchanges are merging. Uh, cryptocurrency is more prevalent.
1: Have you thought at all about how the world of investing will change in the future? I think it's important. The reason I think investments are fascinating is it takes so many aspects of someone's life. You have to understand politics. You have to understand what's happening with uh, people's habits. You Mm -hmm. have to understand business. You have to understand psychology, sociology, how things are done. And I just think things are going to be, I'm not sure how they're going to change exactly. And once you accept they're going to change, you can deal with it, right? What's Instead not, of fighting the inevitable change, yeah, you right? don't fight it. But what's not going to change is relationships. You know, certain people skills. You know, though, that's not going to go out of out of fashion. So, you know, I remind people, and I have a hard time picking, for instance, retail and what fashions are in. And people suddenly, oh, no. I said, is that a fashion or is that a trend or is that a brand? And I just remind them of leisure suits. And they look at me I said, I, like, they, like, look at leisure suits. Go back to this. Like, people wouldn't wear them today.
0: Most of our podcast listeners won't even know what a leisure suit is. Uh, I will. But I use this same uh, topic to talk about Vans shoes. We have three teenage kids. Yep. All three wear Vans. They were popular back when leisure suits were popular. Right. And they remain
1: popular today. And I think they're very basic, somewhat ugly, checkered shoes. What about hair length? Oh, it's okay to have short hair. A lot of guys shave it, but it wasn't that many years ago where they had long hair, right? We have Michael Jordan to thank for that. He made uh, no hair cool. Yeah. So, I mean, things do change. A good thing for me. But things will happen faster. To me, it's fascinating, right? Even though I don't understand it all. I don't, I clearly don't. One day I was going home and someone drove me and our gates were closed. I didn't know how to open the gate. Then... I came to the garage door. I didn't know what number to punch in, and then the alarm was on. I didn't know how to do that, and then I didn't know how to turn on the TV. And I'm thinking I only got into the house, and I didn't even know what I was doing.
0: Yeah, you're investing in Amazon and other AI Amazon companies. Amazon, I don't. Know.
1: Unfortunately, I missed that one. But we have Google, and we have Facebook, and we have PayPal, and we have Visa, and mm-hmm. we have two payment companies in Brazil, and and and, and Shopify, and ServiceNow. I mean, it's unbelievable. Shopify.
0: Yep. Right. Do you think that there are some industries, you mentioned the cloud computing, anything else that in the future we should all be thinking about as a new investment opportunity?
1: I think this whole AI learning and and having kind of office robots or office computers, uh, I think that whole area is going to grow. And I think it's going to be the disruptors are going to disrupt and there are going to be industries that are going to be disrupted. Mm -hmm. There are just certain industries that are going to have a hard time because the way things are done, and there's other industries that are going to be the beneficiary of those changes. So trying to understand the trends is also important. Now you get other people to tell you certain things that never go out of fashion. Um, you know, someone said, well, community banks could be ex- extinct at some point. I said, all right, well, there's still 5,500 banks. And, and it's possible that they're going to go down to 1,000 banks and, mm. and there's going to be consolidation and, and there's going to be more payments through the internet and there's going to be more ways to do things through different currencies and different ways. Um, that's, that's true. But that's why it's important to constantly learn. Constantly learning. Back yeah, to our topic
0: of the day, right?
1: And, and don't, don't, don't fight it. You know, most people are worried about change. So once you accept a problem, you can deal with it. And, and, and many times we're fighting something. And then once we accept it, then we say, okay, we can deal with it. One of the things we haven't yet talked
0: about today, but uh, we have in the past, is your multifaceted life, not just your business and investing pursuits, but also your charitable pursuits and your civic engagement, let alone your active family life. One of my mentors told me, don't get so caught up in what we do because when we stop doing it, then what are we going to be known for? And... I feel you have managed this well. You're known for many different things, not just your work life, not just the Fidelity group with your name on the door. Was that intentional to like spread your wings into these different pursuits or did that just kind of happen? You got asked to do a favor and that led to politics? Or
1: I think a lot of life is sometimes not as well planned out as somebody may think. Yeah, it's probably think. true. Um, you know, for instance, I just left the meeting where we had, a debrief of the Children's Hospital and start planning our our big gala. You know, my wife and I are blessed with five children and seven grandchildren so far and, God willing, more. So to me, what's more noble than taking care of a sick child, an ill child, someone that is suffering and so when you look How at, did you get
0: into the children's hospital? Let's use that as an example. Like, Was that by chance because a friend asked you to get involved, or well, was that but, intentional?
1: Well, what happened is, uh, years ago, Dr. Loop, who's now gone, had come up for lunch in our dining room and asked... This the, is Fred Loop, who was the CEO of the Cleveland Clinic. Yes, and it was two CEOs, and then Dr. Cosgrove took over, and now Dr. Tommy Maholovic is the current CEO, and, and they're all brilliant guys and very committed. And so I went on the, on the board, and, and I figured, all right, I want to get involved, and I'd like children, and also at the time, there wasn't any board members that were really very active with the children's hospitals. So I, I try to also get involved where I, not only am I passionate or I like things, but also where I think I can make a difference.
0: Well, that that's—okay, so that was intentional. You saw an opening there, and the board kind of pursuits children's—
1: I just, I just saw that I, I'd like children, and I just saw that it was an area that a lot of the other members— weren't active with and I said, you know, maybe if I get involved here I can make a difference, I, I can improve, I, I can contribute, I can expand, I can I can assist. It is an area that I liked and an area that I saw were There maybe was a need. There's a need and I could I could make a difference. And so sometimes I don't get involved in certain big things. It's not because they're bad, but I don't know how much I can move the dial and, and so how much more impact am I gonna have with a huge organization that that's being supported, and and so sometimes I like to find things that are just uh, almost like finding um, a rare stock that maybe not everybody else in the world is following. Maybe something that isn't as popular or something that isn't uh, uh, as exposed.
0: Is it a little bit like being a bigger fish in Probably. a smaller sea, like the Children's Hospital? You yeah. could be the big fish. Not that you wanted to be big, but you wanted to have an impact.
1: I think. It's, I mean, it's sometimes you have to say, "All right, am I doing this for ego, or am I doing this because I think it's it's mission driven?" or or I can make a difference. And sometimes you have to reflect. And and, and so at the end of the day, if you're really making a difference and you're improving someone's lives or helping out and and, and the greater good is being accomplished, then I think, and also you have to have an interest in that area, right? Of course. It's got to be a passion of yours. And so you have to have an interest. And when you look at an innocent baby or a child suffering, uh, it's hard. Now, on the other hand, uh, when you see people on the opposite extreme at a nursing home, yeah. And elderly that now are... Or addit- addicted patients. Addicted, and there's other people. So so there are so many needs and so many causes. Is If every person just got involved with one thing, and you multiplied all the people that got involved with one thing or two things, and then everybody can help out a little bit.
0: That's what I try to do. I try to match up people's passions with needs. I don't try to sell every need to everybody.
1: It's the rational targeting and yeah, the right. relationship I, mapping,
0: right? Good, yeah, right. good. See, I follow so, your lead. I right. met you 15 years ago and now yeah. I'm trying to do what you taught me to do. What do you think this serving of others does for you? You're serving others through the children's hospital or through chairing the mayor's campaign for re-election. I think what, what does that do for
1: you? I think what happens is when you really, you know, you, you talked about uh, Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning. I think what happens is that you ultimately find out that, you're probably the happiest and most satisfied when you've really have been able to do something for somebody else. And, and so, yeah, you know, we're human, so we're going to be selfish. But when you really look at that mother who takes care of that child or that person who helps that other person out, what ends up happening is you're doing the greater good. You're being that servant leader. It feels good. But ultimately, you feel better because you supported something or did something for somebody else that made a difference. And it was the right thing to do. And you also benefit by helping somebody else or doing something for someone else, right? So it's a learned behavior, right? We have to practice it and do it. I call
0: this relationship equity, where you're building equity in a relationship. You can make a withdrawal once in a while. I can ask you for a favor, but I want to be more on the deposit side.
1: And especially when you can really do it where you don't care about the equity, you're doing it because you say, you know what, I've been so fortunate. What do I need if I can help somebody else out? When you look at the philanthropy that Americans do more yeah. than anybody. Highest per capita in oh, the world. Yeah, it's unbelievable. And the super wealthy, once they have so much success, they start thinking like, they become so generous. Look at, at, you know, all these billionaires. The, the, the who, Giving uh,
0: Pledge. Yeah. Have you been asked to participate in the Giving Pledge? No, I haven't been asked because those, those, those are real big Bill guys. Bill Gates right? is going to call you pretty soon. Yeah. You better watch your yeah, mobile phone. Call,
1: he'll probably call other people before he calls me. But, but the idea, now I don't like to be part of a crowd. So, so I, you know, what Bill Gates does or what other guys do, to me it's it's about uh, becoming the best version of you. Absolutely. Not that Not negative. to compare, right? No, because what happens is if Bill Gates is worth $100 billion, and you're not, does that mean you shouldn't try to do your own thing? I mean, I mean, you're not—is he more important than, than Adam Kaufman?
0: Right. We, we try to talk to our children about the importance of philanthropy and doing for others, but we can only talk about it so effectively at the table. It was only once we took our kids to a inner-city church that was doing certain activities outside the church hall for that underserved community— and they saw the needs there, and then they decided to give their $25 or their $14. It was like the experiential memory of being there that led to the inspiration for them to give. So, yeah, at whatever level, that's what creates the meaning. Hey, listen, sometimes
1: it's just being nice to somebody, right? Absolutely. Papa. I won't be home too late. Love you, we're already, Papa. We're already at your house, Anastasia.
0: Okay, Papa,
1: love you. Say, I love Papa. Okay,
0: say, I love Papa.
1: I love Papa, too. Love you. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Wow, as Umberto
0: uh, hurries home to get to his adorable grandchildren, I want to leave with you today my big takeaways from our discussion. Number one, when we begin our career, instead of just focusing on what we're good at doing, we should think about what makes us feel good while we're doing it. Number two, Umberto's point that the secret of happiness is love, and the essence of love is to serve others. Number three, each of us can do ordinary things in extraordinary ways. Number four, purpose and meaning become more important the older we get. Number five, we are often most satisfied when we serve others. I'm Adam Kaufman, and I'd like to thank you for listening to part three of our special mini-series with Umberto Fideli. I sincerely hope you enjoyed today's episode and I encourage you to subscribe to UpTo on your favorite podcast app or you can visit us at uptofoundation.org. UpTo is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. A special thank you to our producer, Bridget Coyne, and our audio engineer, Dave Douglas.